chapter 50 this morning. Genesis chapter 50. We're going to begin reading in verse 14 and down to verse 21. We've almost completed our journey through the book of Genesis. And of course, the latter part of this book has been occupied with the story of Joseph. And uh, we're coming to the end of that account. And we're, uh, we're thinking about the death of Jacob and the aftermath uh, of his uh, funeral and of his passing. And we pick up in verse 14. It says, And Joseph returned unto each, into Egypt, he and his brethren, and all they that went up with him to bury his father after he had buried his father. <clears throat> and when Joseph's brethren saw that their father was dead, they said, Joseph will peradventure hate us and will certainly requite us all the evil which we did unto him. And they sent a messenger unto Joseph, saying, Thy father did command before he died, saying, So shall you say unto Joseph, Forgive, I pray thee now, the trespass of thy brethren and their sin. For they did unto thee evil, and now we pray thee, Forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of thy father. And Joseph wept when they spake unto him. And his brethren also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we be thy servants. And Joseph said unto them, Fear not, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good, to bring to pass as it is this day, to save much people alive." Now therefore fear ye not, I will nourish you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spake kindly unto them. And we trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's, uh, let's ask the Lord's blessing upon our time together. Father, we again, we just thank thee for this morning. Lord, we're dealing with a, a really important subject this morning, the matter of forgiveness, personal forgiveness. And Lord, I pray today that you would help us each one now to come to the scriptures and really, Lord, not just come here as a matter of form, not come here, Lord, just a matter of religious exercise, but to come here today desirous to hear from thy word. Open up thy word to us today. Speak to our hearts. Use this time for thy glory. In Jesus' name, amen. If I could sum up the experience of the Christian life in one word, that word would have to be forgiven. The Christian isn't perfect, but he is forgiven. And Joseph's brothers were forgiven. Though they had derided him, though they had physically abused him, though they had cast him into a pit and ultimately sold him into slavery, they were completely forgiven. But sometimes it is hard for a person to accept the fact that they are forgiven completely and unconditionally. Many Christian people struggle with this. We doubt whether God has really forgiven us. We question whether or not we are truly saved. Sometimes uh, this is because we're living sinfully. And when you live sinfully, well, unrighteousness never yields assurance. But sometimes even those who are living carefully... Even those who are living for the Lord, <coughs> excuse me, are open to doubt and to fear. And are concerned that if they die, 
Well, perhaps, just perhaps, they would discover that they were never really saved after all. Some of you may feel that way sometimes. You know, you can't understand how God could even love a person like you, let alone forgive you and unconditionally release you from all the sins of your past, your present, and even the future. But if you've come to that place where you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, I want you to understand that God has done just that. That your sins, past, present, and future, are completely forgiven in Jesus Christ. And if you would accept that truth, if you would realize that you are accepted in the Beloved, all the guilt of your past would be gone and that you would be able to live freely and with liberty in the knowledge that you are saved for sure and on your way to heaven. This morning I want you to see that guilt, and I'm speaking about false guilt, guilt that's already been forgiven, can be a great hindrance to you in your Christian life and it causes grief to the heart of God. This is the thrust of our text this morning. And I want to follow, I want you to follow along as we uh, break this text down. And I want you to see, first of all, the concern of Joseph's brothers in verses 14 and 15. It says, And Joseph returned into Egypt, he and his brethren, and all that went up with him to bury his father, after he had buried his father. And when Joseph's brethren saw that their father was dead, they said, Joseph will peradventure or perhaps hate us and will certainly requite us all the evil which we did unto him. So here's this family, and they are returning from a funeral. They're returning from Jacob's funeral, and you'll recall that Jacob had, on his deathbed, requested that he be buried in Canaan land, in keeping with the promises that he had inherited from Abraham and Isaac. (coughs) And so they did. As was requested, they took the old man's body back into the promised land and they buried him there. Now they're on their way back from the graveside service and they have a 250 mile long journey in front of them. So there's plenty of time to think. There's plenty of time for reflection. And among their reflections are thoughts of their relationship with Joseph. Now remember, Joseph has been effectively made the head of the house. He received the double blessing. Reuben was passed by. Joseph is in charge. Joseph is now the senior figure in the house. He's also the senior figure in Egypt. He's a, he's a, high, a high-powered politician. And so no doubt they looked back over their lives and over their dealings with Joseph and they remembered vividly that day when they sold him into slavery, when they lied about the bloodied garment of their brother and presented it to Jacob as though he had been dead. And there can be no question that they were guilty, that they were in the wrong. They had done it. And now we find that their consciences simply will not let them go. That this sin of theirs from many years before keeps coming back into their minds. It keeps recurring in their thoughts. I wonder if you've got a sin like that in your life. Something you did in the past that you really regret. Somebody that you mistreated perhaps. Maybe it was a mother or a father, a husband, a wife. Maybe it's one of your children or, 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 or whoever. And that sin just, just keeps coming back to you. Even though God has forgiven it in Christ, it still comes before your mind. Even though you know that you shouldn't be feeling guilty 
guilty about it, still you do. It just keeps coming up and coming up and coming up. And so it was with these brethren in, with respect to their dealings with Joseph. They were struggling with conscience. And conscience is God's natural prosecuting lawyer. It serves to accuse us, uh, but we might ignore its accusations. We can maybe even become numbed to its condemnation. Or indeed, we can have a perverse conscience so that we can actually excuse our own behaviors. You know, many lost people are in that place today. They gave up listening to their consciences a long time ago. But when we're saved, it seems that your conscience suddenly gets revived. All of a sudden, it's sharper than it used to be, far more sensitive than it was uh, before. You know, when I, before I was saved, if I received the wrong change, I'd have happily put that money in my pocket and walked away and, and considered that a, a, a favorable day. But now if somebody gave me the wrong change, I'll go back and I will, and I will see that I give that money back to the shopkeeper. You know, I've even done this in Tesco, even done it with a few pennies on occasion. Where I've gone back and they look at you, like, you know, Tesco is a, a big national company, a multinational company. And for you to come back with 50 pence or 20 pence, they look at you like your head's a marley, to use a Belfast expression. There's air getting into this fella. You know, I remember one time Hazel and I were buying some little trays for Christmas and Hazel had accidentally stolen one. And uh, <laughs> they were, there, were, there were two that were stuck together and she thought she was buying one. And she went up and she paid for one. In fairness, she handed the two trays over to the lady and she scanned them as one and handed them back to her. But when we got out the door, lo and behold, we had two trays. And she went right back in, I'm glad to say, and she gave back the other tray. But you know, if you were a lost person, you'd probably say, brilliant, two for the price of one. You'd walk away happy as could be. Certainly I would have before I was saved. I'd have said, they're lost. You know, insurance will cover it. But when you get saved, your conscience becomes much sharper. And certainly the consciences of Joseph's brothers have been made sharper. They've been revived. And they've been reflecting upon their past. And they're overwhelmed by the guilt of their actions. You know, guilt lays the foundation for doubt. How could it be that Joseph could possibly forgive them? You know, maybe there's a catch. You know, how can he require no repayment, no compensation whatsoever for all the things that they had done on him? And maybe, and this was their line of reasoning, maybe he was only saying that he forgave us in order to please our father. But now that our father's dead, well, he's going to come and there's going to be a payback for us. You know, doubt ultimately gives way to fear. You see, if you're a doubting Christian, eventually you'll be a fearful Christian. You'll begin to fear that maybe you're not saved. Maybe you're not going to heaven. Maybe the Bible isn't true. Maybe you didn't truly repent. Maybe this and maybe that. You know, uh, doubt gives way to fear. And we see this in the lives of Joseph's brothers. They thought that since Joseph's motive for forgiveness was based upon their father's emotional well-being, that with their father gone, Joseph would now exact his revenge. Now understand, this kind of reasoning was not without justification. 
Uh, it was customary at this time that the family feuds would often be settled after the family head had passed away, after the father had died. And as long as the father survived, there would be peace. It would be albeit a fragile peace. But as soon as he was gone, it would be payback time. In fact, we've seen this already, uh, this particular principle at play already in this book. If you look back to Genesis 27, <coughs> Genesis 27 and verse 41. Genesis chapter 27 and verse 41. And notice what it says, And Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing wherewith his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, The days of mourning for my father are at hand. Then will I slay my brother Jacob. You see the, the thought, and this was, this was a common behavior. This was a customary reaction in ancient times in that region that when the father died, well, then it was time to get your revenge, and there was a free-for-all upon others. So they thought themselves that Joseph, well, he's just been biding his time. He's been waiting for the father to die, and as soon as we bury the old man, he's going to come back, and he's going to have us for selling him into slavery. So they decided to do something about it. And notice the confession of his brothers in verse 16. And they sent a messenger unto Joseph, saying, Thy father did command before he died, saying, so, so shall you say unto Joseph, Forgive, I pray thee now, the trespass of thy brethren and their sin, for they did unto thee evil. And now we pray thee, forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of thy father. And Joseph wept when they spake unto him. And his brethren also went and fell down before his face. And they said, Behold, we be thy servants. So now gripped with this fear, this foreboding that Joseph is going to revenge himself, they send a, a delegate to see him. They send somebody along. Now we don't know who that person was. The Bible doesn't tell us precisely who they sent, but the message was clear enough. It was a message supposedly from their dead father. They said, Thy father did command before he died, saying, So shall you say unto Joseph, Forgive, I pray thee now, the trespass of thy brethren and their sin. Now it's very doubtful that Jacob actually said that. You say, Well, how do you know that? Well, chapter 49. Tells you exactly what Jacob said on his deathbed. And he didn't say anything about forgiving of the brothers. There was no such statement made. Jacob trusted Joseph. Had he the slightest concern that Joseph would avenge himself against his brothers? I'm sure he would have mentioned that on his deathbed, but he never said a single word about it. Now, so basically what happens here is they fall back to their old ways. Remember, this is a family, and if you go all the way back to Abraham, we talked about this generational sin, how that Abraham lied and Isaac lied and Jacob lied, and now we have Jacob's sons lying. You know, deceit is, it runs, uh, just runs deep in this family. This is, a, this is a, a learned practice. This is something that, they were, that they've caught over the generations. There's generational sin. And so they come with this lie. And they said, now, Jacob's dead, our father's dead, but he had a word with us before he died, and he said that you have to forgive us. Now, before we're too hard on these brothers of Joseph, let's remember that they're filled with fear and they're filled with doubt. 
And when you're filled with fear and when you're filled with doubt, here's what happens. You walk in the flesh and not in the spirit. When you're filled with doubt, you walk in the flesh, not in the spirit. You see, the New Testament says whatsoever is not of faith is sin. And these men are not acting in faith. And obviously they wanted to put some weight to their petition. And so they invoked the name of Jacob. They said, Daddy said, Daddy said that you're going to have to do this. And notice what they asked. They asked for forgiveness, even though they'd already been forgiven. Have you ever done that? Can I tell you that's a mistake that many Christians make? You know, maybe, we, maybe we go to bed, maybe we did something wrong, we go to bed and we ask the Lord's forgiveness about it as we're going to bed that night, we're taking account of our day and we say, Lord, please forgive that action. And then the next day it comes back to us and we say, Lord, please forgive me that sin. Well, haven't you already asked for forgiveness? Didn't he already forgive you when you first asked? Isn't this his promise that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us? That if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Doesn't the Bible say that? And faith relies on those promises and says, God says if I ask anything according to his will, it's granted. It's his will to forgive my sin. The word of God says if I confess my sin, he will cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Faith says I believe that. I accept that. But fear and doubt say, no, you're going to have to ask again and again and again. And so these sins that we've committed recur in our hearts and our minds and we think them over and we think to ourselves, I need to ask forgiveness for that again now that's not the way this thing works when you are forgiven when we are forgiven by God understand that you are accepted by God and that God will never avenge our sin upon us never when you got saved and the Lord forgave your sins understand you'll never meet your sins again you know we preach that to lost people But sometimes we as Christians need to remember that. That he put our sins as far as the east is from the west. That he's buried them in the deepest sea. That he says their sins and iniquities I will remember no more. So we're completely forgiven. When God said that he would forgive us, he did forgive us. And so again, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When you honestly confess and forsake your sins, they are forgiven. And God will never raise them again. Now sometimes we say, when we speak about forgiveness, that a person to be forgiven or to forgive, they must forgive and forget. Do you ever hear that saying? You need to forgive and forget. Well, I'm, I hate to tell you this, it's impossible to forget. If somebody does you a bad, some does you wrong, it's impossible to forget it. In fact, the truth is you're more likely to remember a wrong than you are to remember a right. You think about it, people bless you all the time. They give you things, they help you in some way, they pray for you, they give you an encouraging word. Those things we tend to put to the side. But if somebody does me wrong, that's something I'm going to remember. I'll remember the hurt. I'll remember the pain. I'll bear the scar. I have the wound. 
Those words are replayed in my head. That action is replayed in my mind. And so we remember things. And it's impossible to forget those things. But here's what forgiveness does. Forgiveness makes a choice. Forgiveness chooses not to remember. It's not that we forget, but we choose not to remember. It doesn't forget the pain, nor does it deny the wrong, but it gives the person who caused the wrong and the pain permission to forget it, to let it go, to be in the past. God has forgiven you and I permission to forget our past. Paul put it this way, forgetting those things which are behind. I press toward those things which are before to the praise of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Why are you or why am I reliving sins and feelings that God has forgiven and will never, ever call to mind? Now, Christian people then make the second mistake these brothers made and they feel that they can somehow make up the gap in, their, in the shortfall in their, in their relationship with the Lord by serving him. Notice what they said in verse 18. And his brethren also went and fell down before his face and said, Behold, we be thy servants. Now, friends, I'm, I'm, in some ways I'm teaching you here, you know, something that's very obvious. I feel I'm, it's like I'm Captain Obvious today. When you are saved, you are saved high. You are saved by grace through faith. Or by grace you are saved through faith. God did not ask you to do any particular work or service in order to be saved. You know, tonight we have uh, six people being baptized, Lord willing. And those six people are not going to be saved by baptism. They're already saved. They're saved by the grace of God. So God is not asking them to be baptized in order to save them. He's not asking you to do anything in church to, in order to save you. He's not asking you, you know, you've got to perform some particular ceremony or function or action to save you. He, you're saved entirely by grace. So the idea that somehow after you're saved and you sin or you look back on some sin, that you can somehow make yourself more acceptable to God by your works is really, is really undervaluing the work that Christ did for you, and it's a misguided notion. I want you to go to the Gospel of Luke for a moment, in chapter 15. Very familiar passage, Luke chapter 15, the chapter of lost things, a lost sheep, a lost coin, a lost son. And you get to chapter 15 and, and verse 18 of this chapter, and we're dealing with the prodigal son, and we're coming to the moment of his repentance. Where he rethinks his actions and his behavior. And he says this in verse 18. I will arise and go to my father. And I will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. And I am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. And when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto the father, said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and I am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to the servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him, 
and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to be merry. Now I want you to notice the reaction of the son. The son had this notion that he had somehow lost his sonship. He said, I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. But when the, when the father goes in and, they, and instructs the, the, the actual servants to kill the fatted calf and prepare for a, a feast and celebration, he doesn't say, uh, for this my servant was dead and is alive again. He says, for this my son was dead. You see, even in his misbehavior, the prodigal was still his son. You can't be someone's son more than you are. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? If my son were to call me up today and say, Dad, I want to be more of a son. I say, what are you talking about? You're my son. You'll always be my son. Nothing will ever change that. You know, if you, if you were to commit a great act of treason and be vilified by the entire nation, you'd still be my son. If you did a terrible thing and you were on the front pages of the newspapers, you'd still be my son. Because sonship is based on relationship and not on performance. He didn't work his way into becoming my son. He was born into my family as my son. And that's how it is in salvation. In salvation, you're adopted into the family of God. You're granted sonship. You become a son or daughter of God. And there is nothing you can do to make yourself more of a son of God than you are already. Look in John chapter 15 for a moment. John chapter 15. I want you to see how the Lord Jesus spoke with his disciples. John chapter 15 and verse 15. He says this. Henceforth, I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. Servant is and in the inner workings of the house. He says, but I have called you friends. For all things that I've heard of my father I have made known unto you. So we're not servants, but sons. We're not servants, but friends. And on the strength of grace, we've been adopted by God into his family. We're accepted as sons, considered as friends of God. And God will not entertain the idea of you trying to gain ground with him as though what Christ did for you was somehow insufficient in some way. What I'm telling you today is this. Your standing with God is sure in Christ. It is sure in Christ. You cannot be any more of a son or daughter of his than you are already. And this is a wonderful truth. Because in Christ, get this, we are completely and forever forgiven. Completely forgiven. That's how we're getting into heaven. Because we're completely forgiven and we're forever forgiven so that we can have complete confidence in God and the salvation that God has granted us. So when Joseph heard his brother's appeal, 
We read that he wept. It hurt him deeply that his brothers thought that he would punish them, and all the more so that he would place them as mere servants before him. And you and I grieve the Holy Spirit. And we hurt the great heart of God when we spend our days believing that somehow, in some way, God is going to punish us for the sins of our past when all the while we are saved by the grace of Christ. Listen, God, I want you to get this, if you're a Christian, God is never going to punish you for your sins. Never. You say, well, how can that be? Look, it goes back to the cross. On the cross, Jesus was punished for our sins. He took the payment. God loves us so intensely, and Christ has forgiven us so completely that we can be confident that we are forgiven for all eternity. But when you doubt him, and when you grieve him, when you fear him as a believer, and I don't mean a reverential fear, but I mean here a a judicial fear, when you fear that he's going to punish you every time you step out of line, you grieve him. It hurts the heart of God when you'll not accept that you're completely forgiven forever in Christ and saved and saved For sure. Now I want you to notice the compassion that was shown on Joseph's brothers. Verse 19. And Joseph said unto them, Fear not. He said, For am I in the place of God? But as for you, you thought evil against me. But God meant it unto good. To bring to pass as it is this day, to save much people alive. Now therefore fear ye not. I will nourish you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spake kindly unto them. Notice the first words out of Joseph's mouth. What are they? Fear not. The Bible says that God hath not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. A Christian doesn't operate in the realm of fear. A Jehovah's Witness operates in the realm of fear. He's fearful if he doesn't stay within the Jehovah's Witness organization that he will fall foul of the battle of Armageddon when he comes. When it comes. We don't operate on that basis. I don't serve the Lord because I'm afraid of God. I don't serve the Lord because I live each day in terror of the Almighty. I serve the Lord because I love the Lord. I serve the Lord because of what he did for me. My life is not characterized by fear, but by love and grace and compassion and mercy. That's the basis on which we go forward. Christian, you have nothing to fear from God. Nothing. You are the particular object of his love. The Bible says Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Thanks to Calvary, God has nothing against us. Nothing against us. Now notice on a human level, Joseph said, fear not. He said, for am I in the place of God? In other words, he gave place to vengeance. He says, look, if there is vengeance to be had here, the vengeance lies with God, but I'm not going to take any revenge. You see, here's the secret of, of Joseph's victorious life. And I want you to see this in verse 20. He says, but as for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring to pass as it is this day, to save much people alive. 
You see, here's the secret to Joseph's life. All along, we've marveled at this man. You know, he, he's mistreated at every corner, at every point. He's mistreated. He's abused. He's abused by his brothers. He's abused by Potiphar and Potiphar's wife and, and all, of the, all of the dealings he's had to be subject to and all of these things. And yet with all, he just comes out smelling of roses. How was that? Because he had this ability to see the hand of providence in every circumstance. That's the message of verse 20. And it's foundational to forgiveness. Whatever happens, I want you to get this, whatever happens to you, whatever happens to me, whatever bad things happen to us, whatever negative things happen to us, they only happen because God allowed them to happen. And in allowing them to happen, God had some greater purpose for us. You know, before I was a Christian, even in the early days of my Christian faith, I used to wonder why we called Good Friday Good Friday. I couldn't say anything good about it. I thought that was a terrible day. You know, a day when God's son is killed. Why would you call that good? What's good about that Friday? That's a terrible Friday. It should be called terrible Friday or awful Friday or bad Friday. Why would you call it good Friday? It certainly wasn't good for Jesus when he hung upon the cross. But out of his death, good came. You know, the Bible says that he submitted to death because of the joy that was set before him. In other words, he saw that good would come out of it. And, you know, when, here's the thing. You know, when out of, out of the death of Christ came the life of man. Out of the cross came salvation. When hell had done its worst, heaven did its best. And good always conquers evil. And where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. You've got to get that into your head. You see, here's the thing I want you to see. Even when life gives you lemons, somehow or other God turns it into lemon juice. He turns it around. You know, as a young pastor, I had, I had a fellow who was very intimidating in my congregation. He was, a, he was a senior figure in that church. Very intimidating fella. And, uh, you know, sometimes when I was preaching, he would shout things out. One day he shouted, get on with it, you're waffling. <laughs> some of you might like to shout that some Sundays, but you're more polite than that. He shouted, get on with it, you're waffling. One day I was teaching something. He said, tell them this. Tell them that. He was teaching my lesson for me. It was very annoying, very aggravating. And you know, you can imagine our relationship began to deteriorate. And then he began to sit on the front row. And when I was preaching, he would sigh out loud so that everybody could hear. So I'd make a point and he'd go, (sighs) (sighs) And then get this. He'd get his nail clippers out. And he'd start clipping his nails right here in the front row when I was preaching. (coughs) And honestly, it was making my life a misery. And it was bad. It wasn't good for me and it wasn't good for the congregation in particular. And ultimately it came to a head and we had a big explosion here. Now, as you can imagine, I'm not going to know the details of that. But he was a very fearsome character. And people often cowed to his, his pressure and his intimidation. You say, well, how did that work for good? I'll tell you how it worked for good. Because as I went on in my pastoral ministry, other people would sit in the congregation and they would scowl at you when you were preaching. And I would look at them and go, you're not even close. You're not even close to that first guy. You know, he was Premier League. You're down there somewhere in the lower divisions. 
It didn't bother me. You know, I had a man one day who was so mad at me, he lifted his chair, he turned it toward the wall, and he sat with his face to the wall while I was preaching. Not even close. You see, at the time I was miserable. This fellow was making me miserable. And I thought, God, why don't you take this guy away? Why don't he go to another church? But God meant it for good. He was preparing me for a lifetime of people who would be difficult or people who would be stubborn or people who would be proud or people who would be resistant to the word of God, who would, who would scowl at you when you were preaching and let you know that they were experiencing displeasure and all that you had to say. But here's the thing, you know, I, over those years I learned because of that first experience just to let that go and preach the word of God no matter what. That's what it means. God worked it out for good. God brought it to pass that good would come out of it. And here's the thing I want you to see. You know, and I've made this point. I want you to know how completely forgiven you are. So, so much so that out of even evil, good can come. You're completely forgiven. You're so completely forgiven that God, get this, God doesn't even hold the death of his own son against you. Think about that. You're so completely forgiven that God doesn't even hold the death of his own son against you. Remember Jesus prayed on the, on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, if God could forgive you that, what sin could you possibly commit that would outdo, that be worse than the death of Christ? If God can forgive us the death of Christ, surely he can forgive us any other sin. You know, in that day, our sin was expressed in the most gruesome detail. And the, and, and the wickedness of the human heart was exposed in the way in which Jesus died. But here's the thing. If you come back here, it says God meant it unto good. <coughs> as rotten a day as that was, God meant it unto good. As cruel a day as it was, God meant it unto good. As awful as it must have seemed to his loved ones, for Mary and the disciples to watch the Savior die, God meant it unto good to bring many people alive, to bring to pass as it is this day, to save much people alive, to bring life to the dead. And looking down upon the death of his own son that day, the Bible says this, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Why would it please God the Father to bruise God the Son? Because God meant it unto good. I want you to go with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. Now remember these brothers thought that Joseph was going to avenge themselves and himself because their father was dead. And you and I sometimes think that God is going to do the same against us when we sin. He's going to avenge himself. But watch verse 31. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Now watch what it says. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also 
freely give us all things. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long, we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me ask you mothers and fathers something, particularly those of you who have young children. When your children mess up, When your children sin in your home, do you ever say to them, you're not my child anymore? Would you ever even dream of saying such a thing? I would hope not. You might say, I'm disappointed with you. You may tell them to sit on the naughty step or whatever people do today. But no point are you going to say to them, you're not my child anymore. You're not my son. You're not my daughter. Because sonship And daughtership relies upon relationship. And nothing changes that. And even though your child has misbehaved, and even though maybe you're disappointed with their conduct, you still love them just the same. You know, every Christmas we threaten children with Santa Claus. There are no children of age in here, I think, that still believe in Santa Claus. So I'm going to say this right here, right now. I hate Santa Claus. I said it. Shocking. I'm glad I said it in October, not December, or you'd have fired me as a pastor. I'll tell you why I hate Santa Claus. I hate Santa Claus because their relationship with Santa Claus is works-based. The deal is, if you don't behave yourself, Santa doesn't bring you any presents. But if you're a good boy or girl, he does bring you presents. And children project that view onto God himself. And so we take a make-believe figure and we make him almost a divine figure who has miraculous powers, just like God. And uh, he, he, he relates to you on the basis of your performance. But I want to tell you something. God is not Santa Claus. God loves us, no matter how bad our performance may be. And Joseph, with a lot less Bible than we had, indeed with no Bible at all, understood that. He saw that if God was for him, nothing could be against him. Who could be against him? He reasoned that if God was for him, even when others do things that hurt him, that in providence those hurtful things are actually in his favor, that they're for good. And so he found it easy to forgive. It wasn't difficult for him to let go of the past because he saw that everything that happens in the past feeds into the future for our good. Everything. And finally, he reassures his brethren. Now therefore, fear you not. Verse 21, I will nourish you and your little ones. He said, I'm going to keep taking care of you. And he comforted them and spake kindly unto them. You see, he didn't desire to punish them. He wanted to bless them. 
Friends, you know what you're hearing there in verse 21? You're hearing the Spirit of Christ talking. Now therefore fear you not. I will nourish you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spake kindly unto them. You know, if Jesus was in this pulpit today, he would speak kindly unto us. He wouldn't come here with a rod of iron to beat us up. He would speak kindly unto us. He would tell us how he loves us. He would tell us how he forgave us. He would tell us how he shed his blood for us. And he would speak with nothing but grace and truth unto us. God doesn't want you to serve him out of fear. He wants you to serve him out of love. He's not sitting in heaven waiting to drop some block upon your head the moment you mess up or you do something wrong or you sin in some way. He has forgiven all your sins. (coughs) He saw your sins ever before you were born. He saw your sins when he put Jesus to the cross. He understood exactly what it was Jesus was dying for. He's forgiven you all your sins. And he stands in heaven today, ready to bless us and to minister unto us. And being then that God has so freely and completely forgiven us in Christ, being that he works out all things unto his own good, even the sinful things people do against us, Can we not then reach out and forgive one another when we mess up? You know, Ruth Culkin, we sang her little chorus there earlier, Our God is so big. She wrote a little poem entitled Personal Hurt. And its lines accurately reflect the spirit of forgiveness that you see in Joseph's life. She said this, O God, in this personal hurt that pierces so deeply, give me, I pray, the high and holy privilege of proving to the one who initiated the hurt that the love of Jesus can withstand it. I love that. You know, by letting others off, by forgiving those who hurt us, by permitting them to forget the past, here we see Joseph was proving that the love of Jesus could withstand his personal hurt. Have you been hurt? Of course you have. Who hasn't been hurt? If I've been hurt, sure I've been hurt. You wouldn't be human if you weren't hurt sometimes, would you? But here's what I learned. I learned that the love of Jesus can withstand that personal hurt. And that I can be free to release the people responsible for it and hold no ill against them. There may be someone that you need to forgive today. Someone who's caused you great pain in the past. Someone whose actions changed the entire direction of your life, perhaps. They may even have meant it for evil. That might have been their purpose. But I want you to understand God meant it for good. Maybe today is a good time to just put that thing to bed. And to show those people that despite the deep hurt that they've caused you, that you understand that Jesus within you can withstand it. May God bless these thoughts to your hearts this morning.